Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm excited it's me and Chris today and we have a really exciting guest. Chris, who have we got on? Well, I thought that things I keep throwing you out of your comfort zone, maybe I should just do it again. So I've got Elizabeth Norton, who is a historian and writer who specialises in the Queens of England and the Tudor period, but we're not doing Tudors. I'll come to that in a minute. Her previous books have included She Wolves, The Notorious Queens of Medieval England, The Berlin Women, Tudor, The Tudor Femme Fatales, Who Changed the English History, and The Hidden Lives of the Tudor Women. But she's here today to talk to about her book, El Frida, the first Queen of England. So Elizabeth, uh, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you very much for inviting me on. It's a pleasure. I'm excited because we actually, as we always do before we start a podcast, we spend a lot of time chatting and came across something very interesting that I didn't know. But the first thing I always do before I start a podcast, FYI to people, as you all very know, my various different hiccups over the past of things like Frygate and other instances where I've slipped up over names. I always ask how to spell or say certain things and ask Elizabeth how to say Elfrida's name correctly. And do you know what? You tell us the story. It's much better coming from you. Okay, so um, Anglo-Saxon names are incredibly complicated. They wouldn't be if we hadn't had the Norman Conquest. We would all be happily calling ourselves Elfweird and... Um, eel gift things so like sorry. that absolutely absolutely so but I always whenever I write on the Saxons I always get people saying well I can't tell them apart the names are awful and they are they look terrible to modern viewers Elfrida is the latinized form of this particular queen's name so if we're going to be more correct about her and ideally I would have called the book this but I, I was told I couldn't um if we're going to be more correct about her name it is Elfthrith so Elf Thrith, and that's her actual name. But Anglo-Saxon names are really hard, and they often begin with an E or an E sound and are difficult to get your head around. In fact, when Elfrith or Elfrida's daughter-in-law arrived in England at the start of the 11th century, she was actually made to change her name because her name was so weird. Um, the Anglo-Saxons just couldn't get their head around it. So they changed her name to Elfgafu, which is a perfectly normal Anglo-Saxon name. They made her change her name from Emma. That was the weird <laughs> name they couldn't pronounce. Hold on, let me get that straight. They made her change it from Emma to, hold on, let me say this again, Elfthrith. Elfgifu. So this is the daughter-in-law. Yeah, Elfgifu. 
And I think that really sums up Anglo-Saxon names. If we were here in the 10th century or the 11th century, Elskafu is a perfectly normal, or Elthrith, perfectly standard name. Emma, not so much. To all the Emmas out there, we're going to have to now change your name. I think Chris is laughing too much. I'm going to have to take the first question. Yeah, sorry, I can't get my head around Elskafu. <laughs> Fantastic. If I know that when I was naming my children. <laughs> Thank God you didn't. Anyway, let's kick off with the first question. So I'm going to try and wrap my tongue around Elfthrith. I may be t- saying it in a bit of a slower way. Anyway, so what do we know about her and her early life and her first marriage? So Elfthrith, um, she is, I mean, she's actually really important. No one's ever heard of her, I mean, as, as a starting point. Um, but she's really important because she's the first woman who was actually crowned as Queen of England. And if you read histories of queenship, you'll often get people starting with Matilda of Flanders, who's the wife of William the Conqueror. And they'll say there aren't any. The Anglo-Saxons didn't have any queens. And we start with the post-conquest. But it's absolutely rubbish. Um, there are lots of Anglo-Saxon queens. And Elthrith really is the one who starts this off. Um, she is she's an Anglo-Saxon noblewoman. So she is the daughter of a thane, which is the second rank of the nobility. So you get the eldermen at the top, so the earls, and then you get thanes, who I guess would be sort of barons um, today. Um, she's the daughter of a thane. She's born in the 940s. We can't be any more precise than that. We don't have any birth records. We don't have very much early information on her at all. But she's quite high ranking. And Anglo-Saxon kings tend to marry from the English nobility. So, you know, she's always, you know, potentially up there as a bride for the king. Which leads us quite nicely to her her second husband, who's King Edgar. He had quite an exciting life and reign, didn't he? He did. So King Edgar, Edgar the Peaceable, because all Anglo-Saxon kings have nicknames, um, and he's the Peaceable largely, and partly due to him being quite a powerful king, and partly because actually no Vikings come during his reign. He's quite fortunate. He is an Anglo-Saxon prince. He's a younger son, so doesn't inherit the throne automatically. In fact, his brother, Edwig, becomes king before him. It's another one of these Anglo-Saxon names. There aren't many more Edwigs. Um, Edgar, Edgar's accession is quite murky. Um, he is involved in a rebellion against his brother, um, and they agree to split the kingdom in two. And then the brother sort of quite conveniently dies quite quickly. This happens a lot in Anglo-Saxon history. And, you know, I I think we can sort of assume there's a bit of sort of fratricide going on there. So Edgar becomes king. And he is, he's a very colourful character. Um, His marital life is particularly complex and particularly colourful. Because Elthrith is probably his third wife. Hold on. He's not going to be another Henry VIII, is he? He's not, he stops at three. Um, in fact, um, all like the highest we go with Anglo-Saxon kings is three wives. So he's not quite another Henry VIII, but it is quite complex and does involve at least one divorce. I was going to say, uh, and if, if I remember correctly, uh, one abduction from a nunnery. Yes, yeah. So um, Anglo-Saxon marriages are, are not, they're not the same as sort of later marriages. Some can be less legitimate than others. So you can have something that's sort of a hand fast union. It's not sanctioned by the church. Um, often they get called concubinages, so con- concubines, um, which is, they're a varying legitimacy. Um, his first wife probably existed, but we don't know for sure. Um, she's probably called Ethel Flade. 
um, and the daughter of a nobleman. Um, it's quite a quick marriage, probably not sanctioned by the church, um, and it produces one son, Edward, who we'll hear more about later. She then vanishes. She either dies or she is put away. She's divorced um, because it's very easy to get rid of a non-church sanctioned spouse because the church doesn't view it as a legitimate marriage. Edgar is then looking for a new wife and he turns to Werwell Abbey um, and he wants to marry um, a young nun there who um, her aunt, who is the abbess, is quite keen for him to marry her. Um, and it's sort of it's quite a complex story. It involves um, the nun being locked in her room until she agrees to marry the king, but she instead escapes through the abbey sewers. Um, so he instead marries her cousin, Wolfrith, who may or may not be a nun. Um, this marriage produces a daughter, Edith, doesn't seem to be a success. And Wolfrith is then given permission to go back to her nunnery with her daughter. So that ends the second marriage. And then, of course, we come to Edgar's attempts to marry his third wife, Elfrith. Oh, hold on. Sorry, I need to wrap my head around this. This is, I'm sitting here mind blown that you can just pull out a nun and go, that's it, I'm going to marry you. Yeah, I mean, it, it drew quite a lot of contemporary comment. Um, you know, it's it's not really the done thing to marry a nun. Um, the first nun obviously wasn't very keen. Walters may not have been a nun when she married the king, but she's certainly living in a convent. Um, and later on becomes an abbess and that she is renowned as a saint. I mean, I've asked women out before and they've, they've with many negative effects. I've never had one escape through the sewers before. <laughs> <laughs> no, it sort of suggests he's not quite the catch he maybe thought that he was. <laughs> yeah, you can't use that. But I'm king. To... <laughs> oh, dear. Right. So we've come back to Elfrith. Yes. So how does she come to marry Edgar? So Elfrith is married before. Um and she is married to Edgar's former foster brother, um, Elderman Ethelwold. And it's another Anglo-Saxon name. Um, Ethelwold is a really, really good match for Elthrith. He is the eldest son of Athelstan Half-King. Uh, it's another Anglo-Saxon name. Um, Athelstan Half-King is the most powerful man in England after the king. Really, really prominent nobleman. He's called the Half-King because he's almost a king in sort of his power and his glory. Um, so she marries his son. Um, around the time of the marriage, the half-king retires to a monastery and so passes all his property to Elfrith's first husband. So it's a really good marriage. There are lots of stories, um, none entirely contemporary, but from sort of the following few centuries about this marriage. It basically is said that King Edgar had heard about the beauty of Elthris, this beautiful daughter of a thane, and he sends Ethelwald, who's his foster brother. Um, Edgar's been raised in the half-king's household, so he sends Ethelwald to go and sort of see what she's like, really, saying, you know, if she's really as beautiful as this, I'm going to marry her. As the story goes, and there are two versions of this story, um, Ethelwald sees Elthris and immediately falls in love with her. Um, and he decides that he doesn't want her to marry the king. He wants to marry her himself. So um, he goes back. He says, no, she's hideously ugly. Um, she's really, really unattractive. Don't marry her. But actually, you know, I thought I might marry her. So if it's all right, would you give me your permission? Um, so according to the story, Edgar says, yeah, right. You marry her if you want. Um, seems a little bit suspect, if I'm honest. Um, but anyway, Ethelwald and Elthrith get married. We know that they have at least one son during the marriage, probably two sons. And there is also a daughter who is either Elthrith's or a previous wife of Ethelwald's. But um, Elthrith raises this daughter as her own. According to the story, 
Edgar then grows quite suspicious because he keeps hearing these rumours that actually Elspeth is very attractive. So he goes to visit her. And when her husband hears that Edgar's on his way, he begs her to put on her ugliest clothes and to make herself look really hideous. Um, but she refuses and instead wears her best dress and does her hair and her makeup. Um, Hold on. Edgar Too bloody right. Yeah, well, absolutely. Too... I mean, absolutely. <laughs> put on Edgar your then... best dress. Why are, you, why are you putting yourself down? He's the king. Yeah, and she's, I mean, she's yeah. missed out on a chance to become king, um, queen, even as <laughs> the story goes. Edgar then falls in love with her. And the next day, he invites her husband to go hunting with him in Werewolf Forest. And while he's there, he runs him through with a javelin. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> if you're going to make a really shitty move against someone, this is your comeuppance. It is. You get javelin. Well, you, you say that, but I, I kind of have sympathy with the, oh, my God, she's stunning. I can't let him marry her. Well, I, I need a wife. So I, I can. I, I do have sympathy for the first husband. Yeah. Not that I do that. If any of my friends are listening, I would never do that to you. Hint, hint. And I think the moral of the story is don't mess with Edgar, really. Um, you know, he's Edgar the Peaceable, but he's quite... He's quite a hard man in many respects. Um, I mean, it's not a contemporary story. And I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that Elsworth has such a negative reputation that people can believe quite a lot about her. With certainty, she's definitely married to Ethelwald. Um, she's later accused of adultery um, with Edgar, but that's more likely because um, he's still married to his second wife rather than her husband being alive. Um, but certainly it's quite an iffy start to their relationship. There's quite a lot of criticism about the fact that they then get married and they get together. But they do get together and they get married and she becomes uh, Queen of England. It's often is the case of women in sort of early periods of history just completely disappear. But she actually has quite a major role in several things like um, religious form, doesn't she? She does. She does. Elspeth actually, um, she is the first English woman to be given a, a sort of distinct political role, which is really important. And again, sort of deserves shouting about. Um, Edgar's reign is known for the religious reform movement of the 10th century. Um, monasticism is in a huge mess in England when he becomes king. Um, the Vikings had destroyed most of the monasteries in the 9th century, and it hasn't really recovered in the sort of 50 or 60 years since. Um, there are the monasteries that do exist have um, secular clerks instead of monks. They're often married. Um, they're generally not seen to be very holy. And there's been a movement over the past few decades before Edgar becomes king to try to sort out monasticism and to have it run along the lines and with the rule of St. Benedict. And Edgar really determines to do that, to change monasticism. And Elsworth is a major participant in this. She's allied with Bishop Ethelwald of Winchester, another Anglo-Saxon name, I'm sorry. Um, Ethelwald is very, very austere, um, very, very serious, wants to do the reform, and he is her biggest political supporter. Another leader of the religious reform movement is Archbishop Dunstan of Canterbury, um, who really doesn't like Elsworth. Um, so we've got these sort of tensions in the religious reform. But it's Ethelwald, Bishop Ethelwald, who's responsible for drafting most of the main documents of the reform, including the Regularis Concordia, which is a document really setting out Edgar's plans for the monasteries. And what's really interesting about this is the king is placed in overall control of the monasteries. But at the same time, the queen, Elthrith, is placed in overall control of the nunneries. So she is the head of England's nunneries. 
Um, if they have any problems, they need to come to her. She can decide how they can be run. She can appoint the abbesses. It's a really important role. Um, it was probably quite personally satisfying because, of course, at least one of Edgar's um, ex-wives is in a nunnery. So she's actually been placed in, in charge of Wolfrith, her predecessor as well. Can I just ask, did she do a good job of this? Yeah, I mean, she does. Um, it's quite difficult with Elthrith. A lot of the sources are quite hostile. Um, quite a few of the sources are associated with Wolfrith and her daughter, so Edgar's previous wife, who doesn't seem to have retired quite as willingly as perhaps Edgar would, would suggest that she had. Um, so sources that can be connected to Wolfrith are quite hostile of Elthrith. Um, but other sources to do with the nunneries, particularly um, some of the houses down in um, Hampshire. Um, her stepdaughter or daughter from her first marriage is a nun down at Romsey. Um, and they're, they're more positive about her role. Um, there's sort of no evidence that she doesn't do a good job. And she's certainly associated with nunneries. She actually founds some nunneries later on in her life. But it's not just religious reform. She uh, takes quite an active role in ruling the kingdom as well, doesn't she? Yep, she does. Um, she is very determined to be presented as Edgar's legitimate wife, as is Edgar. Edgar is hugely ambitious. He has imperial ambitions. He sees himself as the emperor of Britain. So, you know, not just England, but also the wider kingdoms of the British Isles, so Scotland, um, Wales. He sees himself as the overlord, effectively. And as he sort of grows in ambition, so does Elthrith. So we can see her witnessing charters. Um, charters are um, great documents for seeing who is at court and how they describe themselves, because um, when a charter is issued, the people at court will witness in order of their um, rank and their precedence. And Elthrith witnesses as the legitimate wife of the king. Um, her son, her eldest son by Edgar, Edmund, who actually will die young. Um, but when he witnesses, he witnesses as the legitimate son of the king. Interestingly, her stepson, Edward, who is Edgar's eldest child, only witnesses as the son of the king. So she's clearly, with Edgar's agreement, making a push for the legitimacy of her marriage and her children over Edgar's um, previous marriages. She is also a major participant in Edgar's imperial coronation in 973. Um, Edgar has been king by them for 14 years. Um, he's probably been crowned immediately after he comes to the throne, although there's no record of it. But he decides to have an imperial coronation at Bath, so the ancient Roman city, to really show himself um, as he views himself. Um, so he's crowned at Bath and the coronation order, which is drafted by Bishop Ethelwald, um, Elfrith's big supporter, has a very prominent place for the coronation of a queen. So she is the first English woman to be crowned as Queen of England. And it's really significant. And it effectively places her as the female counterpart of the king. So politically, it's really, really important and really influential. You just mentioned the idea of pushing her children to be legitimate, you know, ahead of the succession. But this causes a few problems when Edgar dies in 975, doesn't it? Talk us through that. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. It does. So it causes major issues. Um, Edgar dies young. He's just in his 30s. And he dies suddenly, as far as we can tell. And he's left three children, one from each marriage. He has his eldest son, Edward. He has his daughter, Edith, who's living in a nunnery. And he has his surviving son by Elthrith, who is Ethelred. Um, Ethelred, none of them are adults. Um, Ethelred is about seven years old. And Edward is probably around 13 or 14. Um, Under Anglo-Saxon law, all the sons of a king are throne worthy. They're known as ethelings, which effectively means you've got a claim to the throne. If you're the son of a king, you're an etheling. So Edward is an etheling and Ethelred is an etheling. Um, but there's no sort of consistency over who will be chosen, which is why it's quite common to try and push the legitimacy of some heirs over others. And we'll see this in the 11th century with succession disputes where um, the mother of a more legitimate prince will sort of try and push and say, you know, we, were, we had a better marriage, we're more legitimate. Um, so there's no immediate, no clear successor to Edgar. Normally you would expect it to be Edward. He's closer to adulthood. He's the eldest son. But the fact that Elthrith and Bishop Ethelwald are able to push Ethelred forward as a contender suggests very strongly that they've got a lot of political power because normally you wouldn't crown a seven-year-old in Anglo-Saxon England. And it's not a sure thing for Edward. It takes a year for him to be crowned as king. He has the Archbishop of Canterbury's support. He has the support of some of the nobility. But Ethelred has a very strong party, which is led by Elthrith. Finally... Edward is crown king in 976, apparently with Elthred's agreement. And he's probably agreed to name Ethelred as his successor. And it's just not going to work having a king as young as Ethelred. You know, Edward was always going to win this one. Um, But I think we can sort of suggest that Elthred and her supporters weren't entirely happy. Um, Edward is, I mean, Edward, we we don't know that much about Edward. Um, the sources aren't terribly favourable to him. There's one near contemporary source that suggests he's a, he's a bit of a violent and um, difficult individual, but he's very, very young. Um, he suffers a disaster in his reign when um, his supporters are meeting in an upper floor of a room in Carl in Kent when the floor collapses and everyone falls through and is killed, apart from Archbishop Dunstan, who's standing on a beam. Um, so things aren't going very well from him. Um, there's also rebellion during his reign by an elderman Elf here, who is a relative of Elthrith and is very much on Ethelred's side. It all comes to a head in 978 when Edward goes to visit Elthrith and his brother Ethelred at her house at Corfe um, in Dorset. And when he arrives, he is um, a party of men around the Queen come out um, and they grab him. It's quite a quite a brutal event there's lots of different accounts and they sort of get more and more lavish in the telling um but effectively what seems to have happened is as he was being offered a drink while he's still on his horse someone grabs his arm and breaks his arm as he cries out um he's then stabbed and falls from the horse but unfortunately his foot is still trapped in the stirrup and so he's then dragged along the ground for some miles as his horse flees and obviously he's killed um can i just say that has happened not not the stabbing and everything not that hasn't happened to me but when I used to horse ride back at Chris is laughing his ass off when I'm saying this but when I was young I actually I fell off of a horse and I got my leg 
twisted in a stirrup and I actually got dragged quite a yeah. far distance before the stirrup managed to go my god did that hurt I mean I, I passed out yeah. and I, I basically lost consciousness but I just cannot imagine because you're you're talking through this whole thing I can't imagine literally being dragged that just yeah anyway sorry yeah um, absolutely brutal um Ed, Edward's um bones were reportedly found in the 20th century and they um certainly where he was buried and um, they showed signs of quite extreme violence if it was him. So I think, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a nice murder. And it was it was largely botched. Um, I don't think anyone there expected him to be dragged behind his horse. Um, you know, sort of just trying to stab him. Um, but really, really brutal. Um, he's known as Edward the Martyr. Um, that's his his nickname with, with good reason, really. Um, and I mean, obviously, the implication is that Elsworth was involved in that. Um, I make a case in my book that she's maybe not quite as guilty as later writers would have us believe. Um, the earliest account of the murder um, says that it takes place at Corfe, but it doesn't name the murderers. But actually, the, all, all the early accounts charge Elthrith and Ethelred with not um, with failing to avenge the murder and with not burying Edward's body properly because it takes them a while to give him an honourable burial. Um, they don't actually blame them for the murder. Um, instead, it's sort of men around the Queen. It's only really you start in the later 11th century and then medieval writers really take this up with Gusta that they start blaming Elthrith. And she sort of slowly in these accounts moves from being non on the scene at all to being actually outside holding the cup herself while her men stab him. Um, I think, you know, I mean, it's difficult to think that she didn't have any idea what was going on. It's it's her house, it happens in. Um, Clearly, her relationship with Edward is good enough that he felt safe enough to visit her, which I think does sort of suggest that they've come to terms to some extent. If I had to name a murderer, I would suggest Elderman Elf here, who is her relative and the man who's been rebelling against um, Edward is, is quite a likely candidate. But I think, you know, it's difficult to completely exonerate Elfrith, in all honesty. She certainly has the most to gain from Edward's death, because of course, there's now only one Etheling, one throne-worthy prince in England, and that is her son, Ethelred. I mean, this is a thing that comes up quite a lot in history, where the woman is always ostracised in various different sources. So for example, Cleopatra, uh, Catherine the Great, they're all being, through various sources, said, oh, she's evil, she was part of this conspiracy and that conspiracy. And these poor women can never defend themselves. And you've got to, like, like you've done very well, having to take your sources and be very objective about them you know how true is this was she really this conniving evil plotting psychopathic woman at the end of the day yeah I mean she's she's portrayed as the archetypal wicked stepmother and I think it's difficult I mean I think we can't say you know she she's nothing to do with this at all um but I think that pinning the murder solely on her is quite misogynistic um and isn't borne out by the contemporary evidence, which blames her for not prosecuting the murder effectively, for not giving him an honourable burial, but doesn't actually say Anne Elthrith did it. And they could quite easily, there are points in her later life when she's estranged from her son, where it, it would be quite easy to do that. Or after her death, it would be quite easy to lay the blame on her. And actually it takes a while before she begin, begins to be blamed. Um, and I mean, people are, She's portrayed quite negatively in general. I mean, there's a there's a story, a later story um, from 
um, the Abbey at Ely, where um, they claim that she murdered the Abbot of Ely after changing into a horse with magic. Um, so, you know, it's, there are a lot of stories about Elthrith that I think, you know, they get exaggerated over time. They get built up. And because she's seen as this bad guy, it's quite easy to pin anything on her. I don't think that we can say, you know, she had nothing to do with the murder, but I don't think, you know, she's certainly not out there taking part in it. And she does seem to have been on reasonable terms with Edward. So I think, you know, it's, I think we should give her the benefit of the doubt to some extent. I do love the the sort of Saxon period of, oh, then she killed the abbot by turning into a horse. Yeah. Sorry, what? Oh yeah, sure, that must, that must have happened. Let me just put that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, I mean, it's the absolutely maddest story, but it's in, you know, Abbey Chronicles. And basically he's riding through the New Forest um, and he gets off his horse and he needs to have a wee. So he's standing by the tree, um, looks up and he spots the queen using magic to turn herself into a horse. <laughs> you know, and to avoid people realising that she can do this, she has him killed. It's, you know, it's... That's fantastic. <laughs> I think you've broken, Chris. <laughs> oh, I've been staring at 20th century history too long, so this is brilliant. <laughs> I mean, I think we can safely uh, say she didn't murder the abbot of Ely. <laughs> and if she did, she didn't do it whilst turning into a horse. <laughs> Probably not. I mean, hooves. It would be quite difficult to murder someone with hooves anyway, I would have thought. Unless she sort of hit them on the face. Yeah, you'd want to turn into a wolf or something. At least you've got fangs and claws. <laughs> I, this is all I can see. Not that anybody can see what I'm doing. But this is all I can see if you're doing it with a horse. <laughs> yes. But as you said, we, we've only got one Aethelfling left. We've got, I've got to try and say this, Ethelred the Aethelfling, who then becomes unre um, unready. He becomes king at 12 years old. So obviously he can't rule the rule the country on his, by himself. And so he has a minority rule. What role did his mother um, have in his minority rule? Yeah, so she is effectively his regent. She starts to witness charters as Mater Regis, so the mother of the king. Um, she's the first name to witness after the king, which means she's the most important person at court. She and Bishop Ethelwald continue to be a bit of a double act. I mean, in fact, we have a surviving letter by Elthrith. It's written a few years after her regency period. But again, it's all about protecting Ethelwald's reputation. Um, she's clearly very, very close to him. And they press on with the religious reform and they rule the king and they very much marginalise Dunstan, who Elthrith really doesn't like. But until 984 when um, her son has reached his majority and Ethelwald dies, Elthrith is, is the power behind the throne. Let's talk about her fall from power. I'm actually really sad to read that in this in these notes. I was kind of hoping that she'd have a, what's the better way of saying, a better ending. Can, can you say that? Yeah, no, it is quite a sad story um, because she is so powerful and prominent and quite a good politician, actually. Um, in 984, when Bishop Ethelwald dies, um, it gives Ethelred the impetus and sort of the, the ability to remove his mother from power. And um, they've actually kept him as a minor longer than you would expect, because actually in the in the period, you know, when you're sort of 14 or 15, you probably don't really need a regent. Um, so the fact that Elthrith and Ethelwald keep Ethelred as a minor king effectively for longer than perhaps he should be, sort of suggests that they're trying to hold on to power. In 984, she is removed from power by her son and she, you know, she's sent away from court. Um, she doesn't appear as a witness on any of his charters, which means he's, he hasn't invited her to court. She's not at court. She's not totally out of favour, 
because she seems to be raising Ethelred's sons. Um, he marries, a, again, quite a nondescript woman, um, a woman who doesn't become queen. Um, in Anglo-Saxon England, you tend to only have one queen at a time, whether it's the queen mother or the king's wife. So if the king marries while he has a powerful queen mother, the, the wife doesn't become the queen. Um, so Elthrith remains the queen figure. She takes on um, the rearing of her grandsons, and she sort of slowly makes something of a comeback. She appears back at court in the 990s, this time with her teenage grandsons. And again, we can see this through the charters. It's around this time, actually, that Ethelred is starting to make, um, they're known as restitution charters, where he starts making sort of grants and saying, look, I'm really sorry. While I was reigning by myself in the 980s, I did some awful things. Have your things back. So it sort of suggests that he didn't really make that much success of his independent rule. So Elthrith does come back to court in the 990s, but she never has the position that she'd had before. And it's in concert with her grandchildren. Um, but she lives to a quite a ripe old age. She dies in, um, we don't actually, we know the date of her death, but not the actual year. So she either dies in the year 1000 or in the year 1001 or the year 1002, when she would have been around 60, probably, which is a really good age for the Anglo-Saxon period. Um, once she's died, Ethelred is able to take a new queen and he marries um, Emma of Normandy, who is, of course, Elfgifu. It's really interesting because she actually lives to 60. I mean, that's double the time that her husband lived to. It's a really, really good age for an Anglo-Saxon. Kings um, and queens and monk, in the period, you know, they're living into the 20s, 30s, maybe 40s. To make it to 60, she must have been seen as very, very venerable in the period. And it's obviously hard for us to think that now because 60 is no age at all at all. But um, in the 10th century, that's a really good good innings. Her brother actually lived to be very elderly as well. And he lived well into her son's reign too. So they're obviously quite a long-lived family. But it, yeah, I mean, she's... She's a force in Anglo-Saxon politics for, you know, a good 30 years, which is really good going. So, as we said, Elfrith is the first woman to become Crown Queen of England. What do you think her legacy is? So that's a really interesting one. I mean, I think on the negative side, her legacy is the murder of Edward the Martyr. And I think you, know, you can't get away from that. If anyone knows who she is at all, she's the wicked stepmother, um, you know, sort of giving a bad press for stepmothers down the ages. Um, as we said, I think that's quite unfair. Um, I think her actual legacy, um, and the one that you know, she's not really remembered for, but actually is really important, is, is the religious reform movement, um, because she is very, very instrumental in reintroducing monasticism into England and also reforming the church so that it could go into the following centuries. And when we think about the 10th century religious reform, people think about Archbishop Dunstan, Bishop Ethelwold, um, King Edgar himself, there are some other churchmen, but I think Elsworth isn't given the credit that is due to her because actually she is right there in the centre of it. Um, as in fact, in fact is Edgar's grandmother, Edgafu, who is kind of the queen before Elsworth, if you like. Um, so I think these women aren't given the credit they're due. I also think another aspect of her legacy is the fact that she was crowned as queen. Um, certainly, it becomes much more common for the king's wife to be crowned as queen. And certainly her first daughter-in-law isn't crowned, but her second daughter-in-law, Emma, is crowned and is a very powerful queen herself. And when we get into the post-conquest period, almost all queen consorts are crowned. So I think that's a really important legacy because it gives a woman some level of political power. And certainly the fact of her coronation 
is used by Elthrith to really push herself and her children as the legitimate royal family. I'm curious to know, this is totally off topic, by the way, because I love her, by the way. I think she's fantastic. Elthrith is definitely now up there with my top queens, including Anne Boleyn, funnily enough. But so I am one of these weirdo geek people that watches a lot of TV, especially history TV. Is she in and represented in The Last Kingdom? I haven't actually watched it yet. I know that sounds really bad. Um, it's on my watching list. I'm not so I'm not very good at watching fictionalized things because they kind of I, they annoy me slightly often. Um, it's fine if I don't know too much about the period. So yes. I quite liked I quite like the Medici um show that was on a few years ago because didn't know enough about it or the Borgias I think to to worry too much. The Tudors not so much. Um, so oh, I, I can see the that. anger yeah. like, rising in your eyes there. <laughs> I would like to say if there is a powerful queen figure in there. I would like to say that they're likely to be a version of Elthrith um, because she is the starting point of powerful queenship, really. Um, Elthrith and her husband's grandmother, Yvgifu, who's also a very prominent woman. But they really do show that, um, you know, women do have a political role in the 10th century and onwards into the 11th century. Um, and I think she's a really important model for early medieval women and, and just what they could achieve potentially. Just to add to that, I don't know very much about this period, which is why I can easily watch The Last Kingdom without having to worry. Mm-hmm. Anything to do with World War II? Forget it. Yes. No, it's just painful. Thing. It's painful when you know it and it's been fiction. It just, it, it's like nails on a blackboard. <laughs> I had issues with a film not long ago that got released in Poland and I sat with a friend of mine who's another historian. She's, I'm never watching a film like this with you ever again. That's all right for me. That's why it's okay for me to watch the terror because no one knows what happened to Franklin's crew. So it could have been a giant monster. Who knows? <laughs> plausible, totally plausible. So yeah, Elizabeth, this has been really, really interesting. I, I must admit, when um, I got, I got the, we got the idea for the uh, titles because Alina went through a bookshop and just took loads of photos of top bestsellers and said we should go through some of these. And I, I did have to Google Afrida because I had absolutely no idea who she was or anything to do with the period. So I, I'm hoping that by doing this, we've we've brought her uh, back into the public, into a reasonable public view, and um, that more people will be interested uh, in her life because it is really interesting. The book is fantastic. Can you just remind us, um, remind them the title of the book and where they can get it, please? Yes. So it is Elfrida, the first Crown Queen of England. I think you can get it from all good bookshops. I've certainly seen it in Waterstones and also online. It's been out a few years now, but yeah, I mean, it was it was a labour of love for me, if, if I'm honest. I mostly write about the Tudor period, but I felt she was a character that needed to be better known, really, to some extent. I mean, she, she lived a long time ago, but, you know, she's never going to be a household name. But I think, particularly if you're interested in queenship or women's political roles, I think, you know, you can't, really avoid Elthrith because she is a titan of the 10th century. Absolutely and um, we'll uh, we'll try and get it onto the History Hack bookshop as well so that way um, you get a slightly larger slice of the money we get a tiny slice of the money and uh, the guys at Amazon can't build a Death Star or whatever they're building with it now. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Oh thank you very much it's been a real pleasure. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop 
supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.